but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. The earth. Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from the series, Witnesses, a study on the book of Acts. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Heavenly Father, we have sung of, of our Savior. He is our story and our song, and He is the one who gives us hope. And so I pray that one more time today, just this fourth time, and I'm a little bit weary, and all of us are hot because this room is hot, but Lord, uh, we pray for an ability to focus on your word. And Lord Jesus, please just use me one more time. Man, it's been an awesome morning. We have seen people weeping. We have seen people cheering. We have seen victory in Christ, and so I pray you would do it one more time this morning in this church and in all churches that are preaching the gospel this morning, that people will be celebrating who you are. Lord, again, I just like in the early services, I have nothing in myself to do uh, lasting and bring lasting fruit, so I pray that your spirit would fill me, that he, the powerful one from you, uh, your breath, the one who inspired scripture, the one who empowered the apostles, that he would empower me right now to teach your word in the way that your church is encouraged and edified. And then we'll celebrate with these who have come this morning to be baptized. Uh, We thank you for their faithfulness. I pray for our nation, Lord. I pray for our military. So many of our own husbands and dads are out and will be out defending uh, this nation, but also fighting evil. And I use my language very uh, carefully, Lord. It is evil that this this group of people are, are going to a false god to justify evil and wickedness. And I pray that they would be thwarted. I pray that they would either turn from their idolatry and their sin and be uh, converted to Christ, the Savior of the world, or that you would stop them in their tracks and that you would protect these people. And I pray for our brothers and sisters in, these, in the Middle East who on a daily, daily basis are facing uh, just execution for their faith in Christ. Many have already been killed. Pray that you would protect them. And most importantly, Lord, that the gospel would once again flourish in the area that it started Uh, In this Middle East where the gospel first was preached, that it would again flourish and many would come to know you. Lord, we know that's your heart, for you desire for all to come to repentance. Pray for our president. Whether he knows it or not, may he make decisions that are your will. uh, Guide his hand. Uh, And as a nation, I pray for us to to turn to you again. Uh, And I pray that this church will be just a light in Savannah amongst others so that Christ is glorified. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Thanks. You guys have a seat. And turn to the book of Acts. I shouldn't have to tell you what chapter because you guys are such scholars that last week you did your homework because I told you ahead of time. How many of you did your homework? How many of you read Acts 3? Like four of you. The rest of you pagans. uh, Go read it. No. Okay. Giving you guys next week's text ahead of time for the purpose of you being prepared for next week. So that next week I'm going to cover Acts 4 verses 1 through 31. It's a lot of text. So I might not be able to deal with every single detail of every single verse, but if you're working ahead, you're going to already know what's going on. So just a couple times this week, read through Acts 4. I already was, I've been doing it myself just to get ready. Acts 4, 1 to 31. And if you're super, super spiritual, you even go to chapter 5 because you just are awesome, right? So, but today we're in Acts 3, Acts 3. Um, 
most of us have an event in our life or events or circumstances that we would look back and say, man, that was a defining circumstance. Man, that thing, that was it. That changed it all, right? For me, I go back and I remember when I was 12 years old and it was the district championships. Upper Marion versus, I, got, I, I can't remember who. I don't know. It was so important, I can't remember. But it was somebody important. And there we are in the bottom of the sixth inning. We are losing two to one. There is two outs. There's a man on first. And up to the plate, the number nine hitter, little Billy Fowler. And if you think I was little, I'm little now, man, I was like a hobbit. Like back then, I was like this tall, like two feet tall at 12. I never hit the growth spurt. I'm still waiting for it. All right. But so up I go, and I'm the nine hitter. And the best hope for me was they, I, had, I like led the world in walks that year because I was like, I just get up to the plate and I go like this and they couldn't throw strikes. And so their best hope is that I'm going to walk so we get to the top of the lineup and maybe the leadoff hitter can hit the tying run in, right? That's our hope. So I get up there and I got like a 12-inch bat and I'm standing there, all right? And the first pitch is, I remember it's a high fastball. Man, and I just swung with all I got and and I took off running, you know. And by the time I knew what happened, I'm rounding second, and I look into the dugout, and everyone's cheering at home plate, and everyone's screaming because little Billy Fowler hit the ball out of the ballpark, all right? And we're up there. Yeah, I know. Come on, man. Bring it. That's all right. That's what I'm talking about, right? 28 years later, I'm getting the glory still, okay? <laughs> and, and that moment... Man, that defined me for a while. I show up at the ballpark the next night. It didn't matter that we got beat in the championship game because everyone's like, you're a little guy to hit the home run. I'm like, yeah, that's me, you know? And I lived off that moment for years. I was the guy who won the game, right? But here's the reality of that. 28 years later, no one really cares. I mean, you guys are nice enough to give me a hand. That was, that was great. Thank you. Appreciate it. But no one cares. Maybe my mom, she got the ball on the shelf somewhere. I don't know. I can't remember the team. In fact, I didn't even remember it until I'm trying to think of a defining, defining event in my life. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Because it's no big deal. But for a while, that was the most important thing. That was who I was. I was the guy who won the game. And the question is, we're going to ask an answer this morning is, what do you allow to define you? Because there's something in us that desires significance. There's something that desires to latch on, to be uh, part of something. We all have it and we all do it. And maybe it's some accomplishment. Maybe it's the home run, the touchdown that you did. You got the PhD. You're the this. You're the that. Some great accomplishment you did. Or maybe it's, it's ministry and you get your value. I go to CBC or I'm a small group leader or I'm a, I'm a deacon. I'm a teacher. I'm a blah. Maybe it's some role that you fill. I'm a mom. I'm a dad, I'm a granddad, I'm a president of this company, I'm a CEO, I'm a whatever, captain of the team. Now our identity is there. And see, those are good things. Home runs are great things. But here's the problem. 28 years later, no one cares. Right? Eventually, someone, this, this job, after 42 years, they're going to give you a gold watch and they're going to say, ABC and some guy that's 22 from Georgia is going to take your place, right? Eventually, you're going to go from being mother of three to grandmother, and those kids are going to go out, and that role is going to change, right? 
Eventually, someone else is going to take that ministry, and they might do better than you did. They might be a better teacher. They might be a better community group leader. So we can't, that, those are good things, but those can't be it, right? Or maybe your life is defined by some crippling circumstance, chronic pain, something that, that it's going on and it's all you got. It's like everything is that. It's depression. It's this. It's that. Whatever. And that defines who you are. I was just reading this article this morning or last night, excuse me, this, this horrible little instance out in like Arizona where a little girl was at a shooting range and she accidentally shoots the instructor and he's killed. And the family of this, of this man was killed wrote this little nine-year-old girl a letter that said, don't let this event define your life. And I thought, that's interesting language. Because maybe there's something in your life that defines you. I was divorced. I was this. We're going to look at a guy today in Acts 3. He is, that's where he's at. He is facing a crippling, defining, crushing circumstance. And it's all he's got, but he's about to get a new one. And he's about to be made new. And here's what we're going to do. We're just going to simply read the text. I don't have six points of this and four A's, and I don't have any points, actually. I mean, I have a point, but not anything you're going to have to write down. No slides, point one, this. And here's why. I just want to unpack the text. I want to make some observations, and I just want to remind some of us where we get our value. This is not one of those sermons. If you came in looking to learn, like, six new things about the book of Acts and blah, 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 today is not your lucky day. Because here's the great thing about the book of Acts. Most of the stuff we're going to look at for the next 20 plus weeks is nothing really that new. But you know, sometimes what we need, we just need to hear the old story again and again and sing, this is my story, this is my song. And we might need to hear that this morning just as a reminder. Maybe it will be new to you. Maybe it won't. But that's where we're going because we want to be witnesses and we want to remember what it is that defines us. So let me read the first 10 verses. All right, and, and we're going to cover the whole chapter, but let me just read the first 10 because that kind of sets the context of what we're going on here. Here we go. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And so we saw from last chapter that in the early church, they would go to the temple together and they would eat daily together in their homes. And so every day there was two prayer meetings at the temple. There was a 9 a.m. one and there was a 3 p.m. They are headed to the 3 p.m. prayer meeting. Peter and John going up to the temple for the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, three o'clock. At the same time, we find out that a man who was lame from birth was being carried. And here's the key, that he was laid there, what, daily. Circle that. He's daily there. This is his deal. 
This is what he does every day. They lay him at the beautiful gate. We don't know which one that is. Scholars kind of say, oh, it's this one or that one. They don't really know for sure. But one of the gates that apparently was pretty nice, they would lay him outside and he would just beg for alms. That was his daily existence. And we find out from chapter four that he does it for 40 plus years. Okay, that's longer than Jesus was on the earth, by the way. He was begging for alms of the temple before Bethlehem. I put that in context just a little bit. Let me tell you, that is a crushing circumstance. Because you have to understand in this day and age then, this, 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 there's no, uh, you know, Americans for Disabilities Act. There's no special schools for special needs. There's no social security. Right? What this meant for this man was a life that was bleak. There was not a lot of hope. Think about all the things he never was able to do. When all the kids are running out and going donkey tipping or whatever they did back in the day, <laughs> kick the donkey and the, whatever, you know, whatever. Guess who's not going? Guess who's here's the kids playing in the streets, but he can't ever play. So here's the kids kicking the ball around who never gets to kick the ball. Guess who never gets to go into the temple himself and carry his own offering to the priest and say, this is for my family. He never gets to do that. He doesn't get to walk into the prayer meeting like everyone else. He's left outside. He never gets to have a job. Doesn't experience making a wage and feeling the, the value there. He's never going to get married, ever. Because no one's going to marry a man who can't support him in that culture, no. See, when, when a boy was born into the family, it was supposed to be a, a blessing. It was like, oh, a boy. Not that boys were better than girls, but boys were the future. They were this, that was social security. That was retirement, that your son would take care of you. That's the way it was, was. The sons would take care of the parents when they got older. So when a son is born, it's like, man, we have security now. We have, we have hope because he's going to take care of us. And this boy never experienced being the hope of his family. He was, he was never strength to the family. He was always a liability. He was another mouth to feed that couldn't pay for himself. And the way they thought back then it was, was well, his family must be sinful. So they did something to deserve this. This is why God made him lame, because God is cursing them, because he wouldn't have done this if their family... That's the way they thought. So his whole life is characterized by some failure that he doesn't even know. Some false failure. All he knows is defeat, being trapped, no way out, no escape. And he can't imagine anything different but just going up to the temple every day and just begging to get by. Just one more day. Just enough to get through to tomorrow and then enough to get through to tomorrow and enough to get through to tomorrow. That is his existence. That is a crippling, defining circumstance. Right? And let me tell you, I don't know about you, but I've been there. Have you ever felt like you're, just the world has just kicked your teeth in? That you're trapped? That this will never change? That I'll never be out of this? I'll never get out of debt? That the circum I'll never get a new job? I'll never sell the house? I'll never, my kids will never this? My husband will never this? Have you ever been in a place where you just feel like everything's coming in and you're waking up in the middle of the night and your heart is racing and it's all you can think about is that and it's just all consuming? And it cripples you and it limits you. And that is a defining circumstance. That is him. And it's like you're sitting at the gate with deformed feet, just begging just to get through to the next day. 
Just that daily alms. I just need alms for today. And maybe your alms is a relationship with a guy who you know does not love you, but it makes you feel good for right now and it makes you feel appreciated. Maybe, maybe alms for the day is that next trinket. Oh, the iPhone 6. Oh, the iWatch. Oh, that'll, that'll distract me for a little bit of time. Right? Maybe it's, it's some achievement, a home run that no one cares about. Just something to distract me from the fact that tomorrow I'm going to be begging again for alms. Right? And what this guy needs is what we need, someone to crash in from the outside into our little world and give us a new defining moment. So here's what happens. Peter and John are headed up. They're about to go into the temple. And he's asking like he is every day, alms, alms, maybe shouting. And Peter directs his gaze at him as did John. I love that line. Peter does what? He looks at him. He looks at him. Here is a guy who was used to being ignored. He's used to being invisible. Right? He, how many thousands of people walk through his gate every day and nobody even looks at him? We do it all the time, right? We do. We don't admit it. We pull the old cell phone trick. That's how we do it. Little girls outside the Publix selling Girl Scout cookies. We see them. I don't want any Thin Mints. I'm, out, I'm all Thin Mint out. Pull out the phone. It's upside down. We don't care. We just kind of walk by <laughs> using our hands. We never talk with our hands, but we're kind of talking with our hands. Right? Invisible. Ignore. And, and that's what he's used to. But they see him. And this is not the point of the sermon, nor is it the point of the text. But I think it's a great application for us. Just, just camp here for a second. Is Do you see people? Do you see them? Because they're all over your life. And I wonder how many times we blow by the lady at Walmart or the barista or the, the, the whoever. We drive through the neighborhood. We don't notice the kids. Whatever we do, and we just don't see people because we're just on our cell phones. How many times we're at the house, dad's playing with this and emailing this, and the kids are waiting for our attention, and our wives are sitting at the other end of the table, and we're, we don't see them, right? And how much would it mean to just put the phone up and start noticing the people that God's put, the same barista that's there every day who knows your drink before you get there, how about maybe one time you call up corporate and say, there's this gal, she works at this store. Let me just tell you, she knows me. She gets my drink ready. She's a sweet person. You guys need to just know about her. How much would that mean to her? So you don't know where people are, y'all. You have no clue where they are. That's why we do such a long greeting. You have opportunity to, you don't know if people are the first time or the 20th time they've been here, but you have the opportunity to, to love on them and talk to them just a little bit. Especially 1115 when the service is seven degrees warmer than every other service. And so at least if they've been welcomed by a smiling face, they're like, man, that's a hot building, but at least someone was kind to me. You don't know. With, at that little kid in the neighborhood who's always loitering in your front yard, but you don't know if his parents have told him they love them. You don't know if they've eaten a meal with him. You don't know if they've ever been to his baseball game. You don't know if they even care about his homework. You don't know. Don't miss the invisible people. Peter and John, they see. You know who else saw? It was Jesus. And that's why they see. Don't waste. Don't waste the opportunities. And so they see. And they tell him. He fixes his, their eyes in him. And they say, this is really actually weird. What do they say? They say, look at us. 
Now, if I say, look up here, you know, a bunch of you look, oh, look up, some of you wake up, that's fine. That's normal. If you're sitting across the dinner table, I mean, like, I'm like, Seth, look at me. Honey, ah, look here, look at me in the eyes. That's just weird, right? That's kind of weird. If I do that to you, look at me, look at me, right? I mean, it's like the Joker or something. I don't know, it's just weird. How did I get these scars? I mean, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's just kind of weird, but that's what he says. He says, look at us. And he fixes his attention on them because he's normally not used to getting talked to. He's just kind of getting blown off. And he expects to receive something. Okay, I'm going to get my daily bread. I'm going to get my alms. I get it until tomorrow. I made it. And Peter says, hey, I have no silver and gold. It's emphatic in the Greek text. I got no money. Are you telling me the great apostle Peter doesn't have five bucks? No money. The early apostles were broke as a joke. They're sharing everything in common. They go, well, they didn't have like pieces of Jesus' cloth they could sell for $5. No, they didn't have nothing. They're just sharing in common, right? He says, I have no money. I got no silver or gold, but here's what I do have. That just, that'll just feed you for the day. But what I have, what I'm going to give to you, it's going to change your future. And so he says, in the name of Jesus Christ. Remember, the, the title Christ is the Messiah. It's not his last name. His last name is of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. That's his last name. His, his title is Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. In the name, and let's think about that. Why does he say in the name? Because he's pointing to him. He's pointing to his authority. He's pointing to his power. This is Christ. This is the Messiah. And his name, I'm going to give you something. Right? And let's just think about that because we want to jump right to the miracle. But think about, here's a guy who's been there 40 plus years. Do you think he's ever heard the name Jesus of Nazareth? I can bet he has. He sits at the same gate every day for 40 years. Jesus has been in that temple a lot. And maybe he never got the opportunity to see him. Maybe he's heard all the stories. I heard he healed these people. I heard he healed these people. But he never comes to my gate. Maybe he'll come to my gate today. And maybe he did come to his gate, but it was too crowded. And he's crying out, help me, Messiah, Jesus. And he never hears him. Because there's always a crowd. Maybe he never got to touch his tunic like, like that old lady who got to touch the tunic and she was healed. Maybe he's heard stories and he's just longing for one day Jesus to walk through his gate. But then they killed him, and you know he heard about that too. But he hears in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, rise up and walk. And boom, everything in his life changes in that moment. He takes him by the right hand, and he raises him up, and immediately, it's, it's immediate, his feet and his ankles are made strong. This is a legit miracle. This is two feet who were, ne were never used. There was no muscles there. The ligaments, the joints, they'd never been used. And they are immediately made strong. That's years of rehab. That's years of therapy. Immediately strengthened. And this is not like some fake miracle that you see on TV and, oh, your back's going to be, you know, not hurting anymore and you're not going to have headaches anymore and we're going to drag this person. Look, she can walk again. Yeah, isn't that? And they're dragging her across the stage, right? This is legit. Ankles made strong and he leaps up and he stands and he begins to walk, which is another miracle. How long did it take you to learn to walk? Like a year, right? Nine months. I mean, oh, I walked in three months. That's because you're an only child because your parents are like, oh, you know, anybody that has more than one kid, they don't want the kid to walk for like 18 months. They're like, oh, I don't want to chase him, right? <laughs> See, I don't... 
Whether it took you three months or a year and a half, it took you a while to learn to walk. Some of you have broken your leg and you had to learn. Some of you have been through therapy. It took months for you to learn to walk. This guy immediately can walk and he's leaping and jumping and he's playing hopscotch and doing the running man and all these other things all through the temple. And people are like, whoa, look at this guy. What's going on? He's praising God and he's pointing to him because he knows what did it. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and they recognize him. That's the guy. I gave him five bucks last week. Man, I knew he could walk. I knew he was making it. Right? No, they said, no, I've, I've been seeing that guy for 40 years. He was there when I was a kid. It's the same dude. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And it is causing a stir, right? So he's clinging to Peter and John. And all the people are running together to him in the portico called Psalms. The three o'clock worship service has just got blown up. I mean, there's people in there praying for traveling mercies on their camels and praying for their big toe, their Aunt Bertha and all those things. And everyone's leaving the prayer meeting and they're headed outside to go see what's going on. And they're all staling the portico called Solomon. Here's a, here's a model of the Herodian temple where they were. Pretty accurate. All right. And here you got, this is the Holy of Holies. This is the holy place. No one can go in there but the priests and Levites. This is the court of Israel and, and only men can go in here. This is the court of the women. Okay, all the women could be in here, Jewish women. No Gentiles. This is the court of the Gentiles. We talked about that before, right? If you were Gentile, you could not enter into this building. Huge compound. Thousands of people can fit. This right here is Solomon's portico or porch. Okay? It's just kind of a place where you could hang out underneath it or on top of it. Huge place. Uh, and that's where they're going. And they're pouring out. Thousands of them just kind of heading to Peter because they see this guy doing the Macarena on top. All right. And he's just kind of, and they're like, man, something great has happened. Right. Thousands. We find out that next chapter, 2,000 people believe, become Christians right then. Boom. But here's, here's something interesting about Solomon's porch, the same place that Peter is standing right now. And this guy is standing next to him. I'm just doing a little study this week and, and kind of reading through. And it, and six months earlier, something else happened at Solomon's porch. It was December. It was the Feast of Hanukkah, or dedication as it's called. And Jesus of Nazareth was in Solomon's portico. Here's a kind of artist rendering. All right, there's Jesus. He's carrying like a cocktail of some kind. I don't know what it is there, but uh, he's speaking to somebody, and there's about 20 people. This is the front of the temple, but this is the porch right here. See it? Okay, it's kind of an accurate drawing. I mean, people sitting around as they would be. Just imagine now thousands of people in this area listening with this guy. But Jesus, in John chapter 10, six months earlier, is walking in the temple, and all these Pharisees and, and Sadducees and religious leaders, they come up and say, will you just tell us if you're the Messiah? Just tell us. We're sick of dancing around. Just tell us if you're the Messiah. They ask him straight up, and Jesus says this, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand I and the Father are one. And they pick up stones and they're about to kill him. And he's like, why are you trying to kill me? For what good deed? They said, no, no good deed. We're killing you because you make yourself out to be God. 
So what, what's going on here is six months earlier, Jesus of Nazareth is standing in Solomon's porch, claiming to be Messiah, claiming to be God, claiming to give eternal life, claiming to give hope and security to all who believe in him. And six months later now, Peter is standing there with the Macarena doing guy right here. And he's looking out at thousands of people and the irony's got to be there. He's thinking, I remember what happened last time we were here. And so what is he gonna do? He's gonna preach the same message Jesus basically preached and the same message he's already preached in Acts chapter two. He really is gonna preach the same exact sermon from Acts two. He's gonna say, here's what the truth about Jesus. You need to respond. And so let's kind of look at it, just kind of the high points real quick. Peter sees it, he addresses the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though so by our own power or piety we've made him walk? There's always, when God does something great, there's always confusion. In Acts chapter two, the spirit comes down and everyone's like, they're drunk. He's like, they're not drunk, it's 9 a.m. This is not Savannah on St. Patty's Day. This is Israel, right? This is the spirit of God. In this chapter, they do something great. They make this guy walk. He says, it's not us. This is God. This is Jesus of Nazareth. This is the glorified son. And here's just kind of another little side application for us. Not the point of the message, but when God does something great, When God does something good, do we ever kind of steal that glory just a little bit? Thanks a lot. You did a great job with that. I know. Thanks. I know. And I'm not saying we need to be cheese balls. Well, praise God, and it was all him. But you know what? There's this idea when, when God does something great through us, we deflect the glory back to him. And it may be internal. Thank you, God, for letting me do that. Thank you, God, for for letting me provide for my family. Thank you, God, for for using me in that circumstance to be your hands and your feet. That's what witnesses do. That's what Peter's doing. He said, not us. My wife uses this this kind of language. There's a lady who kind of discipled her back in the day. She says, give your bouquets to God. And that's real feminine for us guys, and so I'm not telling you give bouquets. Give rockets or something, but do something, right? (laughs) Shotguns. But hey, when something... Every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights, right? So when he gives perfect gifts and good, just deflect them. God, thank you for that. Thank you for my health. I got a great job. Thank you, God. Thank you for my kid who's doing well in this. It's, this is you. So Peter does. He says, this is Christ. This is, this is the one who, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. He glorified his servant, Jesus. It's about It's about Christ. The same guy, by the way, you delivered over and denied in the presence of violence. This is the servant, and he's using Old Testament imagery. This is Isaiah 53. They know their Old Testament. Okay, they know it well. So this is what Isaiah 53 is, the servant. You delivered him. You gave him the Pilate, and Pilate was going to let him go. He thought he was innocent, and you convinced him. You convinced him to kill him when he decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer. You wanted Barabbas, who was a hater, in the place of the one who was a lover. You killed the author of life, the one that by him, through him, and for him, all things were created. You chose death over life, even though God raised him from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And then he goes down later and he says, hey, this is what Moses was talking about. Moses said, the Lord will raise up a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him whatever he tells you. It shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and to those who came after him also proclaimed. He says, y'all know the Old Testament? You know what the prophet said? You know what Samuel said? You know what Moses said? Y'all should have known. 
Everything was pointing to him. You guys love you some Moses. Moses, Moses, Moses. Well, this was what Moses was talking about. And all the prophets. And Abraham, too. Y'all the, y'all the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers. He told Abraham what? And your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, that was him. All the families blessed in Jesus of Nazareth. And so God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first because you ought to have known better. He, you were promised. You had all the covenants. He wanted to bless you by turning everyone from your wickedness, and you killed him. You killed the true prophet, and you treated him like a false prophet, like a curse, because cursed is him who hangs on a tree. You killed him. But here's what I love about this sermon that Peter preaches. He's not mad or angry, yelling, yo, wicked, go to hell. That's not Peter here. This is not on fire Peter. This is actually, I think, compassionate Peter. In fact, I think he lets him off the hook a little bit. Look what he says in 17. He says, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. I know you didn't know any better, as did your rulers. Ah, this is what God foretold by the prophets, that his Christ would suffer. So I know that you didn't know. You ought to have known. But I know you didn't. And what he's offering them is amazing. Think about this. This is the same people who shouted, crucify the Messiah, the Son of God. This is the same people who rejected his miracles, who saw everything he did, and still wanted them dead. They chose Barabbas. They chose death. And he's still giving them a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance because he is a God of mercy. And he is the same God 2,000 years later who is still offering a second, third, and fifth chance, right? And, and I know that in the thousand-ish people that are going to come through these doors last night and today, most of us are Christians. We, we say we're followers of Christ. We've put our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. I understand that. Many of us are not, and I understand that too, and we're glad you're here too. But most of us here acknowledge Christ as our Savior, and so you say, well, I got this, Bill, I know, isn't it a great story? It's great, yeah, but you know, it doesn't really have any much to do with me. You know, I'm kind of good, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. Here's the thing, that is great, but I know myself, which means I know you, and I know that I find myself too many times begging at the gate for my daily alms instead of feasting at the table of my Father. And I will, I will be satisfied with the slop of pigs rather than the feast of my Father way too often, even though I'm a Christian. And I think if I am there sometimes, then I bet you are too. That I find my identity real, let me be real honest, I care way too much sometimes what you think about me in this sermon. I ask myself way too often, I wonder if that was a good sermon. I wonder if they liked it. And I get my value from that. I get my value from if my kids are doing well in school or if my kids are behaving at Walmart or if my kids are doing well in their sports teams. And that is way too important to me and I get my value from it. And if I do it, guess who else does it? I'm pretty sure you do too. And I'm just begging at the gate for alms. I'm feasting on slop when I could be eating at the table of my father. And the same thing I need to do is the same thing he need to do. Same thing you need to do is get your eyes off the ground and your crippled feet and look up. It's to look up here and to get up and follow these boys in the temple and start worshiping, right? How about you? Where is your value land this morning? Where are you? Some of you, 
you couldn't sleep last night. You know why? Because somebody missed a 28-yard field goal. <laughs> now, here's something you're like, what does that mean? Then, you, then you're not an idolater. You're all right. <laughs> now, as a Gamecock fan, I'm kind of happy this morning. I, I had a good night last night, right? I know. See, now you hate me. That's all right. <laughs> but some of you couldn't sleep. I've been there. I, was, I finally was able to repent of my sports god years ago. I just look back. I remember not being able one time to sleep for a week because my Eagles lost to the Dallas Cowboys on Monday night football because they fumbled a snap on a field goal on the two-yard line. I couldn't sleep for a week. There you go. RG what? I don't know who that is. But that's, that's the idea. My value is wrapped up in that. Some of your value is wrapped up in the fact that you're so busy and you just want to stay busy because you think if I'm busy, I'm doing something, I'm important, I'm moving, I'm this and that. And you need to realize it's, you're, that's just silly. You're killing yourself. Some of you, and, and this is partially funny, but partially not, you have way too much value wrapped up in how many followers you have on Instagram. And you check it way too often to see how many likes do I have now? How many comments do I have now? And you get excited about that way too much. Right? That's what we're talking about. Where does the value, and those things aren't bad, but where does the value rest? You need to look up. Right? Some of you are performing for others and you care way too much, like me sometimes, what people think and what they're going to say and what are they this? And that's next week's sermon, really. But you're, you're pursuing some trinket, some version 6.0 that's going to be out to date in a year, thinking it'll keep your attention, thinking that's where my value is. And you need to understand, you need to look up and stop begging for daily alms because it's never going to fill you up. And I'm talking to Christians. That's who I'm talking to. Here's the response. Here's what, Paul, what's what Peter says. He says, repent. Here's your chance to turn around, to do a U-turn. That's what repentance is. It's just turning around. It's acknowledging I'm going in the wrong way and go. Turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And then the result is times of refreshing, which ultimately will be fulfilled in the kingdom. But there is a peace that surpasses all understanding now. There is a life abundance now. It doesn't mean stuff, but it means rest in Christ that comes now from the presence of the Lord. Right? And some of you need to stop begging. You need to look up and you need to get up. And start finding your value in what Christ has done. If you were a Christian this morning, your defining moment is a no home run you hit when you're 12 years old. It's not when you got married. It's not when you became a parent. It's not when you got the job. Your defining moment was when Jesus died on a cross for your sins and rose again. Period. That is the defining moment. And everything else is just, is just little stuff. That is who you are. And there is no in Christ, well, I'm just a this. I'm just a single mom. I'm just a this. I'm just a... There is no I'm just a. I'm just a child of God. I am just a heir of the kingdom. I am just a brother and sister of the Lord Jesus. That's what you just are. Okay, there is no just. All right, but I'm just a... No, no, no. That may be where you live out your sonship, your daughtership, but that's not who you are. What you've done in the past is not what you are. What you work at, what your role, the home run you hit is not what you are. You are loved by God as much as you can be loved. You are cared for. You are one of his. What did Jesus say? I, I have them in my hand and my father who is greater than I, he's got them. 
That's who you are. You are secure in Christ. So you don't have to go keep trying hard and failing, try hard and fail, try hard and fail. You don't have to add to the finished work of Christ. It is finished. It is done. You're going to add your little quiet time onto the finished work of Christ? That's great. Jesus died for my sins, rose again. He was perfect. And I need to do a good quiet time because that'll make all the difference. Really? Your tithe is going to make you that much better? It's either he is the sum of all hope, he is the sum of everything, or he's not. You can't add to his finished work. Stop trying to impress him. Some of you came to church today, you wanted to impress God. He's not impressed. You don't need to impress him. You don't need to hit the home run. He hit the home run, so you don't have to hit the home run. So you don't even have to get out of the dugout. That's the whole point. He did it all so that you could rest in him. And some of you just need to look up and stop begging for your alms from the world and find your value in Christ, not in what you've done, not in the rules you keep, not in your this and that, not in your marriage, not in your whatever, in him. You are fully accepted. You are fully loved. You are complete. Aren't some of you tired of begging for alms, really? I know some of you gotta be. Today's the day to stop begging and to get up. And that doesn't mean your circumstances are gonna change. I'm not saying it will. Your circumstances may never change. This guy, he walks for a while, but guess what? He ends up not walking again because he gets older and then he dies, right? There's gonna be a time when none of us are gonna be walking again. But what changes is his perspective now. And God may not change your circumstances, but he can surely change your perspective so that you're not looking down at your crippled feet. You're looking up at a risen Savior. And then one day, he will change your location when he returns. That's the hope we have. All right? It's nothing new, but it, it's very simple. But some of you need to hear it this morning. And you need to stop begging for alms. And that's what those who have come this morning to be baptized, that's what they're proclaiming. These folks, and I don't know how many we got this service, five or six, we've done about 14 or 15 after the end of the day, but these folks are coming forward to say, I am not ashamed of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He is my savior. He has forgiven me. And I am identifying with him publicly in his death, in his burial, and then in his resurrection. That's what baptism pictures. These folks are already Christians. They've already had their sins forgiven by faith in Christ. But what they're now saying is, I'm identifying with him publicly, just like the early church did. When you became a Christian, you said, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I'm gonna publicly identify him with baptism. And that's what they're doing. And they're coming to tell you that this morning. That's why for us, it's a celebration. It's exciting and we rejoice in it. And so you are invited to do the same. And that's what we're gonna do. So we're gonna sing and we're gonna celebrate. You're gonna see a video of a couple of them and we're just gonna worship. And here's what I want. For those of you who are in the overflow, I did this second service and it was like crazy, but overflow people, listen up. I know there's some of you. Come in here right now. Like, go through that door. We're opening it for you. We want you in here. We're going to put some of the guys on the walls because it's more fun to be in here and celebrate this. All right? So come on. I know the first person has to stand up, and that makes everybody feel weird. But you be the first person, all right? And come in, and we'll cheer for you as soon as you come to the door. All right? All right, we're waiting. So we're not starting until you get in here. All right? There it is. There it is. See? All right, so, so we're going to stand, so go ahead and do that now, and let's pray while they kind of funnel in, and they can go in the middle, they go on the sides, and we're going to worship. Let me pray. Father in heaven, uh, be glorified this one more time again as we worship corporately through singing and as we celebrate baptisms. I pray for those today who have been just struggling. May they find encouragement from this man who was begging for alms, and now he is with you. May their story be his, whether you change their circumcisions or not. 
that, Lord, that you would be glorified in us as a church. Uh, thank you for bringing those today to here. And if someone doesn't know Christ today, that they may see you and what you've done in your love for them and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. If you're getting baptized, go ahead and head up now. We'll get changed uh, and, and celebrate that in a minute.